Well, hello there. I think you might want to pull up a chair. I'm going to try to position this microphone so I can just leave it in one spot. Um, you'll hear some background noise because, well, the poisoning is pretty intense right now. So, in case you're wondering what that background noise is, um, well, my house is being <laughs> poisoned. So, anyhow, let me see here. So anyway, so welcome to the show. Pull up a chair. I'm going to be talking today about biological warfare. Why is that? Well, I think you'll get the message in a few minutes here because there is something called biological warfare, okay? And there's a subset of biological warfare, and that has to do with bugs and things like that, okay? Because I suspect a couple of things. Remember, they wrote the script, right? So I think what's going to be happening is the Zika, dengue, and locusts are going to be the method, the method of destruction. Because these things all get set up by dry weather, not much water, all these kinds of things. So anyhow, um, so biological weapons, yeah, interesting how that subset works, right? Because that would include things like insects. <laughs> you know, the ones I've been talking about, the mosquitoes and stuff. And so today I'll be specifically talking about the, um, their friends, the locusts. And first, let me play you a clip uh, first real quick of what, what a locust even sounds like. <laughs> I was reading this thing and they were talking about cicadas, C-I-C-A-D-A. And I remember cicadas because when I lived in Arizona, there were cicadas there. And so I went to listen, and I thought, oh, that's why they're talking about cicadas and um, the other things, because of the noise. They, they, both, they both sound the same. So here's the sound of a locust. Okay, I think we got that. <laughs> so, can you imagine those things flying in swarms? So, first thing I'm going to be doing is, um, let's play this clip first. It's from 1952. This, by far, is my favorite channel. It's called The Nuclear Vault. Seriously. And most of these clips, well, there's a few hundred, they have a few hundred videos there, and I haven't watched them all, but... <laughs> Most of them have been done at Lookout Mountain. So this is one from 1952 because we're going to be talking about biological warfare. So let's just get a good overview of that because it's very important to know this. Denied 
the products of our farms and factories, we could not wage war on any front. We can be attacked in spite of our excellent defenses. Attacks may be made in many ways, with bombs or with biological weapons. This might be one form of biological warfare. Thus, but you may have heard. There's a new poison. Run ounce can kill all the people in the United States. Germ warfare can wipe out an entire city. Nothing could be further from the truth. Biological warfare? What do they expect me to do about it? It's not my headache. You're wrong. You had better find out the facts about biological warfare or BW. It can be aimed at you and your home, or at work, at your food crop, your livestock. Biological weapons can be divided into three groups, germs, toxins, and plant growth regulators. Some germs cause cholera, others cause typhoid fever, plague, and such diseases. Toxins are special poisons produced by other germs. They do the harm in diseases like food poisoning and diphtheria. Special plant growth regulators can destroy food crops, just as weed killer can destroy weeds. The public health nurse and the many other members of our public health system have been fighting nature's biological attacks for years. We have proved that our health and medical systems check the spread of infectious diseases. Our livestock and crops are guarded by a nationwide network of federal, state, and local agencies and experts. Government regulations assure the purity of many food products. But VW attacks can be made in spite of our health safety systems. Aerosols containing diseased germs could be used. These aerosols could be spread over large areas. Submarines could release aerosols near coastal cities. Specially designed germ-carrying bombs could be dropped. Enemy agents could contaminate the city water supply. How can we protect ourselves from BW attacks? Keep yourself and your family clean. Don't help germs by making things easy for them. Germs have trouble living in clean places. Enroll in a Red Cross home nursing course. Then if sickness does come to you, you'll know what to do. Always report sickness promptly. And doctor, Mary Gentry is over. If such an announcement is made in your city, don't give way to fear. Just remember that scientists would already be working to control the outbreak. Probably some of the people in your neighborhood would become sick. Reports of the disease would start pouring into health and medical authorities. The number and location of cases would be plotted on a map of the area. Scientists would go to work immediately to identify the cause of the disease. 
Meanwhile, the outbreak would take on a definite pattern. There are important things you can do in your home. You are told a biological warfare attack has taken place. Be careful what you eat and drink. And that bottled goods are safe, but scrub them before opening. Packaged foods in cupboards and refrigerators are probably not contaminated. Boil or cook all exposed food before eating. Water used for drinking or washing after an attack must be boiled. Wash all contaminated garments thoroughly to remove germs or toxins. If your doctor recommends sending a member of your family to the hospital, cooperate. Local health and medical authorities would distribute instructions so that the outbreak of the disease could be controlled. Follow instructions closely. If you are called upon for a blood sample, don't hesitate. Blood samples would be extremely important in helping the scientists identify the germs or poisons. Authorities would identify the cause of the disease as soon as possible. inoculations might be necessary to keep the disease from spreading. This would require the cooperation of everyone. Remember, VW attacks food crops, livestock, and people. Our health and medical systems are the foundations of our defense against biological warfare. Our food supply is guarded by a nationwide network of federal, state, and local agencies and experts. If we are attacked with biological warfare, health and medical authorities will tell you what to do so that the disease could be brought under control. Cooperate with the authorities. Above all, don't listen to scare talk, rumors, or myths. Get a copy of this official booklet at the first opportunity. Read it and remember it. <laughs> Do your part and we can successfully combat biological warfare. Excuse me. What? Well, <laughs> what I like and the reason I played that clip is because <clears throat> I've talked before <clears throat> about how we've learned a lot of things through the movies and stuff, right? Um, I believe that because remember I did a show recently and the police in the United States only solve about 20 some percent of crimes <laughs> it was never meant to solve crimes right I mean they certainly don't solve their own crimes right I imagine the 20 percent or so they crime are like well anyway so not my point but anyway so um, so I, 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 I believe for a very long time that a lot of this is what I would consider like predictive programming, right? Because we hear the word, a lot of these things, like I've heard the word Zika, like in the back of my head, right? I've heard the word Zika, but I didn't hear the whole story, right? So when it comes up again, we've already kind of heard it, right? And so it's interesting because I'm 72 now, so I'm probably the age of <coughs> maybe your grandparents, <laughs> maybe your, <coughs> excuse me, maybe your great-grandparents, but 
this is where we model our information, right? This this directions like, hey, you know, these things could get us, right? <laughs> Everything's always going to get people in this country, right? <laughs> so it started out very early on this concept that we're all going to be gotten by something out there, right? And it's pretty, <laughs> well, it's not funny, funny, ha ha ha, because a lot of people are going to be harmed. But the interesting part in all this is that, well, <laughs> the ones doing the harm. <laughs> Remember, I don't know if you do remember, but I remember um, all those old um, movies, you know, just the, the, the killer movies and stuff, right? The scary movies as a kid and stuff. Well, may, maybe I was the only kid that watched scary movies, but I did. <laughs> it was always, it was the Twilight Zone kind of theme, right? Where the killer is always out there, but you're not quite sure where they are. <laughs> and this is this kind of setup now because, you know, the killer's out there and unbeknownst to 99.9% .9 of the population in the United States, it's our government. <laughs> so before I get started, I have a few things I want to cover. Um, one is uh, I am in Nebraska, right? <coughs> and <coughs> I've been talking about, I believe, a lot of these things. A lot of these incidents with this bioengineering and the attacking through bugs and stuff, has to do with the need they have to want to start spraying us with more and more stuff. Well, so answer me this. So I find this notice, it's from the city here, and it says, Mosquito fogging to begin <laughs> June 28, 2023. The city of Norfolk will conduct mosquito fogging in parks and some residential areas of Norfolk over the next couple of days. Mosquito fogging is generally conducted in the evening hours from 7.30 to 10, weather permitting. While a slight breeze is necessary, wind conditions should be less than 10 miles per hour for best fogging results. <laughs> Residents are reminded to avoid mosquito bites as much as possible. And this is June 28, 2023, and today is July the 1st, 2023. Okay, so this just came out. They started spraying literally two days ago. So residents are reminded to avoid mosquito bites as much as possible. This can be accomplished by limiting outdoor activity at sunrise and sunset when mosquitoes are most active. Now that's be before these new mosquitoes show up, right? Remember the new mosquitoes, you're not gonna know if they bite you. You're not, <laughs> you're not gonna know if it's night or day. So the Aegypti mosquitoes are gonna, are gonna game change this deal, right? So it goes on to say, wearing long pants and long sleeve shirts when in areas where mosquitoes are present and using mosquito repellents, <laughs> such as products that contain DET, West Nile, West Nile virus is a concern throughout the mosquito season. Mosquito habitats include areas of standing water and tall grass. Sources of stagnant water that can produce mosquitoes include tires, buckets, garbage cans without lids, clogged gutters, and backyard wading pools abandoned at the end of the summer season. These types of containers should be drained to eliminate and reduce mosquito development. Okay, so yeah, right here in the middle of Nebraska, the, the word is out about the mosquitoes, right? So yeah, that, that's why I'm doing the show today because I believe that it's going to be mosquitoes. <laughs> mosquitoes and the locusts. But anyway, so I spoke um, in the last show about the people who were the ones who were the uh, people who defined what a psychopath is 
And the person who's, who's considered the grandfather or godfather of psychopaths is a man named Hervé Cleckley, and he wrote the book Mask of Sanity. I have even more details over on my website. Right on my main pa page, I have a section that says myths, <laughs> myths about psychopath diagnosis. And so a couple highlights that I forgot about him. <laughs> he was big into that pellegra stuff, which basically was starving children in um, mental wards because they had some crazy theory about megavitamins in, in psychiatric orders, like schizophrenia. Cleckley also practiced controversial coma therapy where psychiatric patients would be re repeatedly put into comas over several weeks through dose, and I mean this literally went on for weeks and weeks, okay, overdoses of insulin, metrazole, or other drugs. In the wake of sometimes fatal complications, Cleckley published in 1939 and 1941 advising on theoretical grounds so yeah, and he also advised various salts, hormones, and vitamins. And this was in 1939, okay. In 1951, he also co-published co case study research suggesting the use of electro-narcosis for various conditions, a form of deep sleep therapy initiated by passing electric current through the brain without causing seizures as in electrovulsive therapy which he also used. And he was also big into the, um, the world of, I already talked about his deal with the um, Ted Bundy case, but he was big into how the courts, how the courts would talk about psychopaths. And I'll leave that for you because in 1952, Cleckley, along with the other guy, uh, published an article about the insanity defense. So yeah, uh, he was quite a guy and he also, um, there was one of the most creepiest books that I remember, and I remember this vividly, okay? In 1956, Cleckley co-authored a book called The Three Faces of Eve, and um, him and his partner did some really, well, I'll let you go read the whole story because we have other things to concern ourselves with today, but, but the three, they always want to also present women as being just like screaming lunatics, right? Because remember, think of all these stories about the ones who drove their kids in, <laughs> into, into lakes and drowned them to death and stuff. Well, those stories were all fake, right? Remember Andrea Yates? She, <laughs> eating breakfast one morning, decides to drown all of her kids. <laughs> well, those stories are all fake. So they always want to present women in the craziest light possible. Well, he, he introduced this theory through this three phases of Eve because him and his buddy analyzed this person who's I think the whole thing was staged, but anyway, so he, I think part of it was real, but part of it was staged because you'll have to go read about it. There's <coughs> too much for me to get into today, but he claimed this theory of disassociative identity disorder, okay? And that Three Faces of Eve was a hair-raising story, okay, about a mother punishing her daughter to the point that, you know, she would like tie her up to, to I won't get too graphic, but tie her up to the uh, piano and stuff. <clears throat> I mean, just horrific treatment. And then they made a movie out of it. And that was Cleckley. <laughs> he wrote the book. And that's why I think we were all so fascinated by true crime because, uh, well, because, <laughs> because I don't think that any of us would ever have envisioned this stuff, right? <laughs> and that literally was likely what drew
grew is that it's true crime is a big money maker now. So anyway, so let me get on here. Um, uh, so um, I found this executive summary. <coughs> they have all these think tank people, right, that write these things and stuff. And um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but, you know, they're writing these reports about why is this happening. <coughs> so it's happening because of the causes happening within these rural areas with the food and the, and the climate, right? So I'll just read you this little part. It says, against all expectations, the desert locust upsurge that began in 2019 is still ongoing also at the beginning of 2020. <coughs> and remember, weather conditions have just gotten worse since then, right? The upsurge continues to profoundly threaten vast regions, especially the Horn of Africa and Western Asia. With already vulnerable regional world livelihoods and food security put at further peril. Given that due to climate change, conditions favoring desert locust, they're called desert locust outbreaks, will likely occur more frequently and in intensity. So yeah, <clears throat> so I don't need to remind you about the weather changing and the lack of water these people are going through. So yeah, that's, that's the thing that's going on here is that these we're going to focus today on these uh, <coughs> locusts and kind of explain what they are. <coughs> Excuse me. So what I'll do is um, I want to read you a little bit first, and then I want to play a really good clip because this has to do with their biblical thing, with the locusts, the swarms, and all that kind of stuff, okay? Because... The U.S. Army regularly produces deadly viruses, bacteria, and toxins in direct violation of the U.N. Convention on the Prohibition of Biological Weapons. Because things have been passed that these things <laughs> aren't allowed, right? Okay, but that doesn't mean they're not going on, right? So, um, so basically, these bio, U.S. biolaboratories are funded by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, okay? And so that's what you're looking for, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, and they supposedly have a 2.1 billion military program, Cooperative Biological Engagement Program. See, these people do a lot of funding for these things, right? And they're located in former Soviet Union countries such as Georgia, <laughs> starting, to smell, starting to smell suspicious, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Africa. So. The U.S. and the Pentagon have a long history in using insects because I've been talking about insects until for a long time because I believe that insects were a big factor during the Korean War. My father was a navigator during the Korean War, so yeah, I, I have a lot of ideas about <laughs> what went on during the Korean War that I have researched. These are not wild ideas, okay? And I'm not going to get into my whole family thing, but yes. It seems kind of, you know, anyway, so so I believe that I looked into all this stuff, okay, what was done during Korea, and it's my belief, I wasn't there, my dad was there, but unfortunately he was dead by 61 from lung cancer from having served in the U.S. military, so is there a correlation? Well, I don't know, I mean, you take a guess. Um, so 
the Pentagon has a long history. Remember the Pentagon, the people that have no budget, right? According to a partially declassified 1981 U.S. Army report, American biowarfare scientists carried out a number of experiments on insects. These operations were part of the U.S. Entomological, E-N-T-O-M-O-L-O-G-I, Entomological is what we're looking for, <laughs> warfare. Entomological means bugs, okay? So this program, the Entomological Warfare, that's the bugs, right? And we're talking about today, which would be the locusts, okay? And that is under the program for biological weapons. And little, I, I knew we had biological weapons, but this is a subdivision, okay? So this came into effect, and supposedly, <laughs> there's this public law, public law 105-85, U.S. Code, Title 50, came into effect in 1997. It makes it illegal for the military to test biological and chemical weapons on people. <laughs> It also makes it illegal to conduct peace, peaceful experiments on people without their informed consent. And this um, came from ChatGPT, and it came from one of their official sites, because I got their official code right here, right, the public law. So as of 1997, it is against the law for the U.S. government to, uh, well, I never... I never gave them my consent to have them have my house surrounded by transformers, not did I? Biological warfare is the use of bio biological toxins or infectious agents such as bacteria, viruses, insects, and fungi with the intent to kill, harm, or in incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of war. Biological weapons are living organisms or replicating entity, entities like viruses that can be used to gain a strategic or tactical advantage over the enemy. Offensive biological warfare is prohibited under customary international humanitarian law and several international treaties. Chemical warfares are innate substances that have toxic effects on the skin, eyes, lung, blood, nerves, and other organs and are felt immediately upon exposure. Examples of chemical weapons are mustard gas, <coughs> sarin, chlorine, hydrogen cyanide, and tear gas. On the other hand, so those were chemical workers, okay, biological weapons are bacterial, viral, or toxic agents that may not be obvious until days after release. Biological weapons use living organisms or replicate the entities, meaning viruses, to cause death or harm. So this is what makes biological weapons interesting, okay, because they're bacterial, viral, or toxic agents. And this is why I'm focused on these sprays, because I think a lot of these bugs have to do with sprays too, right? So a lot of these things being sprayed are toxic, right? And they may not be obvious until days after the release. <coughs> Chemical weapons have been used in warfare for centuries. 
accounts of ancient chemical warfare, including the use of poisonous smoke and arrows, dates back as far as 12th century BCE. And I'll be playing a, I'm going to skip over this part because I'm going to be playing a clip here about the, um, this has to do with the um, biblical stuff. And let me play that clip because it'll be too hard. It's a pretty simple concept. It has to do with when they had the split between the Israeli people and all that stuff. But let me finish reading this. The Chemical Weapons Convention, or CWC, is an arms control treaty that was signed on January the 13th, 1993, and entered into force on April the 29th, 1997. The CWC aims to eliminate an entire category of weapons of mass destruction by prohibiting the development, production, acquisition, stockpiling, retention, transfer, or use of chemical weapons by state parties. The treaty is administered by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, an intergovernmental agency based in The Hague, the Netherlands. As of August 2022, there are 193 state parties to the Chemical Weapons Convention. Israel has signed but not ratified the convention, and Egypt, North Korea, South Sudan have neither signed nor ratified the CWC. And I just got this from ChatGPT. I, I didn't go and chase it all down again. I'm, I'm assuming it's okay. Um, yes, the, and I asked if the U.S. had signed it. Okay. And it said, yes, the U.S. has signed and ratified the Chemical Weapons Convention. So they signed it. It went into effect April 25th, 1997. Okay. So, um, the, that organization, um, so that's the people in charge, right? So they say that several countries have been accused of using chemical weapons in the past. Really, for example, for example, Angola has been accused of using chemical weapons in its civil war. This is what ChatGPT said. Iraq used chemical weapons during the Iraq. Iran war in the 1980s. Well, Iraq has a whole other problem on its hands with all those tragically horrible, horribly deformed children thanks to the U.S. military. I added Iraq to my uh, timeline. Just do a control search for 2003. There have also been reports of use of chemical weapons in regional conflicts between the two world wars. Really, I mean, uh, Morocco, yeah. Well, some things never go away, now do they? So they say that connections between locusts and people date back for a very long time. And what we're looking at here is called entomological warfare, or EW, is a type of biological warfare that uses insects to interrupt supply lines by damaging crops or to directly harm enemy combatants and civil, civilian personnel. There have been several programs so, which have been used to institute this. And 
EW is a specific type of biological warfare that uses insects. Okay, so, and they also say can deliver agents such as plague or cholera. Now, what I'm going to be doing is playing this clip now because what I believe is going on, because they've been using this for a very long time, okay, because there, there's, if you look up the etymological warfare, they have a whole wiki page all about it, okay? They've all been doing it. It would be kind of repetitive for me to sit here and go through this list. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, well, they're all doing it. So, um, because um, I even found a case of, um, during the American Civil War, remember that name, Civil? I believe that was when a lot of people through some sort of civil arrangement just happened to go missing, but and they just didn't happen to have the photography did now, did they? Okay, the American Civil War marked the first instance of alleged use of an insect insect as a weapon of war. The Confederacy accused the Union of deliberately introducing the Harlequin bug. Tremendous crop damage resulted in the South because of this pest. This allegation was never proven, and it now appears that the harlequin bug moved on its own into the south from Mexico. So yeah, and during World War One, they, you know, they had, certainly they had, um, they said that their operations in 1915, German agents inoculated, you know, they did, they've been doing it for a long time. Okay, so let me go over and play this clip. Because really, these things aren't complete, right? So it'd be like picking on one country after another, <laughs> and they're all doing it. Um, so um, this is about the U.S. The U.S. Army Medical Corps maintained a passing interest in biological weapons since the 1920s. So, in 1937, Roosevelt declared that the U.S. would never resort to the use of chemical or biological weapons unless they were first used by the enemy. Roosevelt, however, had to agree to increase research. Yeah, of course he did, because uh, that's how it works, right? They make, they make these declarations like they're never going to do it. So, let me go ahead and play this clip, because this is real interesting how this... Um, it's a clip, and it's called, I'm just going to play the first part, the biblical part, because it's called Hailstones, Hailstorms, Return of the Plagues. And they cover this biblical part really well, so... plagues. Today we call them natural disasters, but they're actually one and the same. And the biblical plagues are coming back. A hailstorm in the Austrian Alps. In just a few minutes, Hailstorms can do millions of dollars worth of damage. In Austria, it's happening year after year, and it's likely to get worse. 
hail, thunderstorms, torrential downpours, and the havoc they wreak are terrifying in their effects. And this is despite advances in science and technology. But some people are rising to the challenge. They are trying to get to the bottom of these unpredictable, uncontrollable weather events. Texas, May 2006. The frightening force of a hailstorm is captured on amateur video. I think that's it, yeah. That's a biblical part, okay? And I here's here's what I was thinking earlier today is that when they talk about God doing something right, like, remember, this is their script. They wrote this script, right? They're his historians write this stuff. And yeah, this is exactly how I see this is going to play out. 
because they wrote the script. They create the weather. So when you think about like God, think about um, think about um, the U.S. military. Just just insert their name, right? Um, because um, well, they're creating the weather. They're creating the environment. Um, this I'm going to be. Um, this is a really good one as far as the evolution of locusts because they start off differently and locusts are going to be critical so we need to understand what exactly these insects are. Locusts. In the vast and barren deserts of the world, a silent invasion is taking place. An ancient enemy, long thought to be under control, is making a comeback. This enemy the locust, and its return is causing havoc on a global scale. Welcome to the world of the locust plague, a phenomenon that has plagued humanity for centuries. But what is it, and where did it come from? In this video, we will explore the evolution of the locust and the devastating invasions that have occurred throughout history. The locust is a type of grasshopper that can be found in many parts of the world. They are typically solitary creatures but under certain conditions, they can undergo a process called swarming. This is when they gather in large groups, often in the millions, and migrate together in search of food. For centuries, locusts have been a major pest, devouring crops and ruining livelihoods. But in recent years, their populations have exploded, leading to devastating invasions in countries all over the world. This is not just a problem for farmers, but for entire communities and economies. What is causing this resurgence in locust populations? The answer lies in the evolution of the locust itself. For most of the year, locusts live as solitary insects, going about their business without causing much harm. But under certain conditions, something triggers a transformation in locusts, turning them into voracious swarms. But why do they swarm? It turns out that the key to understanding the locust plague lies in their biology. Locusts have a unique feature called phase polyphenism. This means that their behavior and morphology can change depending on population density. When there are few locusts around, they remain in the solitary phase. But when their population becomes too dense, they switch to a gregarious phase and begin to swarm. This gregarious... Yeah, this is what I would, I would call locusts. Certainly not rocket science, right? You breed a whole bunch of them, and then the whole bunch of them turns into the swarm. Phase is characterized by a number of changes, including increased aggression, a change in coloration, and the development of wings. These changes allow the locusts to move together as a group and to fly long distances in search of food. But what causes What causes these population densities to rise? Climate change is a major factor. Drought and extreme weather events can cause food shortages, leading to a higher population density of locusts. This, in turn, triggers their gregarious phase and the formation of a swarm. The consequences of a locust invasion can be devastating for both humans and the environment. 
They can eat their way through entire crops, leaving farmers without a livelihood and causing food shortages. In addition, their waste can contaminate water sources and spread disease. The history of locust invasions is a long and varied one. They have been recorded in ancient texts and depicted in art for thousands of years. One of the most famous invasions occurred in ancient Egypt, where they were seen as a sign of divine wrath. But it's not just ancient history. Locust invasions continue to occur in modern times. In 2020, East Africa experienced one of the worst locust plagues in decades, with swarms devastating crops and causing food shortages. But it's not all doom and gloom. There are ways to combat the locust plague. One method is to use pesticides, but this can have negative effects on the environment and other species. Another method is to use natural predators, such as birds and reptiles, to control the population. But they are not a long-term solution. The key is to tackle the root causes of the problem, such as climate change and land use changes. But it will take a coordinated effort from governments, scientists, and communities to do so. In the meantime, farmers and communities must continue to suffer the devastating consequences of the locust invasion. In conclusion, the locust plague is a complex and multifaceted issue that has affected humanity for thousands of years. The locust plague is a reminder of the delicate balance of nature and the impact that humans can have. Yeah, and as if, um, I'm going to play this clip and then get back to where we were. Um, Afghanistan, I'll be talking about them in a minute here. This is Afghanistan's latest enemy, locusts. Millions and millions of locusts. The country already has the worst humanitarian situation in the world, with 97% of the population living in poverty. But a massive locust infestation is likely to make things even worse. This was a wheat field until a swarm of locusts hit it. After collapse of the uh, regimes, you know, nobody pay attention to locusts. You know, the locusts is uh, a migratory pest, and this is really dangerous because they can attack even more than 100 uh, species or crops, you know, in, in, in the country. If whenever there is nothing, you know, they will eat everything. The UN is preparing for the worst. Their predictions suggest up to 1.2 million metric tons of wheat and other crops could be destroyed. That's about a quarter of Afghanistan's annual production. If you look at it in monetary terms at today's rates, that could be up to $480 million. For a country that doesn't have enough money or food, these insects could be devastating. The methods used to remove the locusts may seem primitive, but it works. They're swept up in a giant tarpaulin. The previous government had spraying capability, but for reasons that aren't clear, this is not being used by the Taliban. The locusts here are destroyed by pouring them into pits dug in the ground and then covering them with soil. Local farmers are being paid by the UN agency to carry out the work. It's some money for families whose crops and livelihoods have already been badly hit. I spoke to Habibullah, a farmer and local elder. We are very annoyed by these locusts. They eat our grass and damages our income and life. They eat our crops. The wheat that we grow here is damaged by the locusts. Since the Taliban took control of the country nearly two years ago, Locust monitoring has lapsed, and even if these efforts mean the UN's worst fears aren't met this year, things could still get worse. The locusts are currently mating, some are already laying their eggs, 
and experts say if left untreated, the numbers next year could increase 100-fold. James Bay's Al Jazeera, back. Yeah, I'm not sure that um, burying them was a solution, but, um, okay, let me see here. Okay, so that gives you an idea of kind of what's going on around, right, why I'm talking about locusts today, um, because there's a long history of all this stuff, okay, because going back to the 50s, we have the Korean and the Cold War. In 1952, China accused the U.S. of engaging in germ warfare against the people of North Korea. The Chinese began producing large amounts of evidence which suggested that the U.S. was spreading bacteria-laden insects and other objects over the Korean countryside. So, I think that bugs and stuff, and this is, this is what makes what they're doing make sense because, well, they're they have, I would say, the majority of people. What do you hear people talking about on social media? Well, this idea that these people are so advanced, you know, because everybody believes what Edward Snowden, that person, that fake story had to say. So people believe that this is some sophisticated matrix-type operation when in reality it's bugs, okay? <laughs> it doesn't get any simpler than that bugs, okay, um, so yeah, so there's all these allegations, and so what happens is, um, you know, they take a solitary grasshopper, and they basically turn it into a locust that is going to be swarming, the Bible talks about the Old Testament, the Bible does mention locusts in several parts, and um, I think this has to do with their biblical thing, that they wrote this script, right, and it's not complicated, right? I don't know. I think you probably heard the same thing I did. They take a singular locust, hanging out on their own, <laughs> which would look like a grasshopper, right? So grasshoppers are how they start. So grasshoppers, hanging out on their own out in the countryside somewhere, get too many of them together, they change their colors, they get wings, and they start flying in very aggressive swarms. <laughs> So I wouldn't call this exactly rocket science. Um, so they certainly got these uh, characteristics down, right? So um, they say that locusts carry disease. Now, I don't know. Maybe they could get a disease-specific locust flying around, right? But it makes more sense that this thing is kept simple, right? That somehow a lot of grasshoppers end up in one particular area, they change colors, grow wings, and fly off to cause destruction. Because, for example, how hard would that be to do? Like, let's say they want to target your, let's say you have several thousand acres or something, right? Well, they just target that area, right? Just <laughs> put those eggs there, and within a couple of weeks, you've got, you've got, I would imagine this. Now, remember, I wasn't there. I certainly would never be there, but, um, well, how hard would it be to plant grasshoppers in an area, right? Because once the grasshoppers grow, they're going to realize there's too many of them. They're going to immediately grow wings and stuff and become locusts. So I think they could probably cut that, cut that um, thing down, right? Um, because they talk about this seven plague thing in the Bible. Palm 91 
5-6. A great palm of protection says that we will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow of the day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that comes at noon. And it said, for the sake of argument, let us accept for a moment that COVID-19 is really a plague. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it is a plague, right? Pan, pandemic. Pan is, remember, their god, right? Pan. So, um, I looked at what's the purpose of locusts. Studies have shown that locust grazing helps many plant species. Well, I don't know about that. Um, and I also was wondering, will locusts eat each other? There are usually, they are usually herbivores. So they focus on, but scientists have observed them eating each other. But they're basically, they eat plants, okay? Um, yeah. So they say, what makes harmless little green grasshoppers turn into brown crop chomping clouds of swarming locusts. So I think this is a pretty um, simple plot if you ask me um, because what they're doing now is all these crop things that are going on in Afghanistan that I don't know. And I do believe I'm going to put this on hold for a second. look like a harmless grasshopper, but under the right conditions, it has an explosive dark side. It's a locust with an appetite for destruction that can rise to the level of a biblical plague. All locusts are grasshoppers, but the only grasshoppers we call locusts are the ones that swarm. Most of the time, locusts are mild-mannered. They stay put and blend in to avoid predators. This is their solitary phase. Locusts can live like this for generations, until something sets them off. In the arid regions around the world where locusts make their homes, the trigger is often a hard rain, especially following a drought. That deluge makes plants flourish. The solitary locusts eat and eat, fueling up and making more locusts. As their numbers swell, they inadvertently bump into each other. The hairs on their back legs are particularly sensitive, and that contact triggers a pulse of serotonin, a hormone that transforms them from loners to partiers. In just a few hours, they can go from a solitarious phase to a gregarious phase. Molt by molt, the locusts change from a camouflage green to an in-your-face yellow and black. The bright colors help scare off predators by telling them the locusts taste bad. These transformed locusts have a huge appetite. And not just for food. 
pretty soon they're surrounded by baby locusts. That's when things start getting crowded. Even a feast this big won't last long with so many hungry guests. The restless young locusts start hopping and marching together, forming groups called bands. It's a locust outbreak. As the locusts mature, they grow wings and take to the air. Giant swarms number in the billions. They devour entire farms in hours, wiping out people's livelihoods and causing mass starvation and misery. Outbreaks like these can last for months or years, even decades. It takes huge amounts of insecticides to knock back a full-on swarm. A better strategy is to catch minor outbreaks before they get massive, but they can be hard to spot. Researchers at Arizona State University are looking into one way to defend against locust destruction by making land less inviting to some species. They put locusts into wind tunnels to see how far the insects can fly based on what they eat. They found some locusts thrive and spread farthest on a diet rich in carbohydrates. Land managers can make their crops and pasture lands richer in protein and lower in carbohydrates if they increase the amount of organic matter in the soil. Avoiding overgrazing helps too. Those are expensive propositions and currently out of reach for many. But if we can keep working on ways to cut back on the carbs, it might just help prevent a plague. Hi, Deep Peeps. For this episode, well, I think that um, is kind of in a nutshell about what these locusts, a.k.a. grasshoppers, are all about, right? Like our allies, the United States responded to the perceived threats from Germany and Japan. In 1943, we began an offensive biological program with a modest research and development facility at Camp Dietrich, which is now Fort Dietrich, Maryland. By the end of the program, we had weaponized a total of seven incapacitating or lethal human agents, including anthrax. In 1969, Richard Nixon renounced the use of biological weapons for the United States. I have decided that the United States of America will renounce the use of any form of deadly biological weapons that either kill or incapacitate. President Nixon visited Fort Detrick on the 25th of November, 1969. I remember that date quite well because following his announcement for taking munitions and beating him to plowsheds, we all lost our job. And that was a very traumatic experience. But following his presidential announcement on the, this date, the, the entire United States offensive program on biological warfare came to a close within two years. We destroyed all of our seed stocks. We destroyed all of our production material at Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And we completely got out of the biological warfare business. Well, sounds pretty convincing now, doesn't it? Then I'd like you to go over and um, go watch on YouTube. 
some of these 90-year-old people that say they were survivors on the um, Titanic, right? Liars come in all shapes and forms. And here's the thing. These very same people tricked us with the space, saying that they really went to space, right? I mean, their tricks have been ongoing. So do you find it, like, terribly hard to believe that these very same people have tricked us with bugs and it's nowhere as complicated as people think. It's really just something like <laughs> these bugs, they figured out how to swarm and stuff to deplete us from food and things like that. I don't know. I would hope that you would be thinking along these lines for yourself as far as what do you think all this looks like. To me, it looks like that is the plan in all of this. There was a recent... Um, an advisory issued by the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, which you're looking for is the FAO. On 10th of May, 2023, warned of a major outbreak after Moroccan locust, a species of the locust which is found from North Africa to West Asia, were reported from 10 of Afghan's provinces. The last two big outbreaks, 20 and 40 years ago, cost Afghanistan an estimated 8 to 25% of its total annual wheat production. A full outbreak this year could result in crop losses ranging from millions of tons. So yeah, this is pretty... Um, they also share data. So if you're looking for data about Afghanistan, you're looking for the United Nations and just look for the FAO. The United Nations is the New World Order. I don't know why most people seem to have missed the memo, right? Every, every group is represented by the United Nations. So, yeah, that's where you want to look for all your new laws and stuff. So, yeah, they're the ones in charge of locust control. UN Food and Agriculture Organization. So they share data on damage caused by locusts. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. They seem to be focusing on Afghanistan. Afghan climate scientists who spoke to the third poll attributed the recent spike in locust population to changing reception patterns. The life cycle of locusts is highly dependent on weather patterns. Afghan is currently experiencing a third consecutive year of drought. The biological and ecological need of Moroccan locusts are being met due to the drought conditions and minimal rainfall, leaving the soil barren and untouched, but with enough moisture to allow the eggs to hatch sooner than usual and the larvae to thrive on the sparse vegetation. So yeah, um, what they're saying is because, well, they don't have pesticides and stuff, right? Um, I believe that this is going to trigger um, DDT and all that, so um, yeah, there's a lot about this over at the UN, but I, I kind of think for right now, we clearly have a pretty good picture that it looks like it's going to be insects, and we have all the key words for all that. The locust is one of the most dreaded and destructive creatures on Earth. The very name evokes a primordial shudder in humankind that is echoed in the story of Moses and the eighth plague of Egypt. Just as the Bible describes it, 
A swarm of locusts can wreak a path of destruction that brings terror, famine, disease, and death. What's terrifying is not the individual, but the numbers, sort of like Alfred Hitchcock's birds. One bird isn't terrifying, but an entire flock of birds out to get you is horrifying. This perfect swarm can really bring starvation to entire country, to very large areas, and it happened many times in the historical past. There were millions of people that died from starvation. For centuries, and on every habitable continent on Earth, farmers and families trying to till the land and plant crops have witnessed the terrors wrought by swarms of locusts. It's almost as if a firestorm has come through. If you can imagine a raging fire with everything burnt down to the stubble, the only thing that's missing is, is ashes. How a swarm chooses where to land is still a mystery. There's some indication that they are keying in on certain wavelengths of, of light, which, which are an indication of food, so they're looking for greens and yellows. The same way a, a traveler on the road would look for a, a sign that says McDonald's this way. Um, rather than golden arches, they're looking for green spots. When a locust swarm does touch down, devastation follows. Locusts, when they eat, they don't have jaws like humans do. They have what are called mandibles, and their mandibles move side to side in the front. And they cleave the vegetation and grind it a little bit before they swallow it. Even though an individual desert locust weighs only about half an ounce, experts calculate that a typical swarm of three-inch-long insects can inflict awesome destruction. It's often said that a locust eats its body weight in food a day. We're looking at somewhere around 200 tons of vegetation being destroyed by that swarm on a daily basis wherever it's settled. And it's not just crops that locusts devour. They will eat any kind of plant. They will eat trees. They will eat houses. It's made of wood. In order to save precious lives, scientists today are conducting a host of high-tech experiments that may unlock the mystery of why locusts swarm. This research could be critical. Some experts believe that if the climatic and ecological conditions are right, we could be on the verge of another catastrophic plague of locusts in the United States. Greg Sword believes that genetics may hold the key to stopping the global swarming of the locust. We're able to look at its DNA, and we can use this information to identify the specific genes that are turned on that result in the expression of migratory behavior. Ultimately, it may be possible to manipulate the expression of this behavior at the genetic level. In other words, stop them swarming. But control techniques remain in their infancy, and it may take many years before this research yields practical results. Meanwhile, some scientists warn there is a more immediate area of concern. They believe that global warming is increasing locust populations worldwide, and it is also changing their migration patterns. They say it could drive swarms of Central American locusts into North America. There's even outbreaks going on right now in the Yucatan Peninsula area of Mexico. Some experts predict that with global warming changing climate patterns, locust swarms could once again sweep through the western United States.
Some experts believe this could herald the return of locust swarms to the United States in the form of the so-called Central American locust. We do have some indication that species distributions in North America are shifting. In particular, species are shifting further northward. A recent study of the geographic distribution of grasshoppers points to an ominous trend. Dan Johnson, who's a researcher in Canada, has done more recent grasshopper surveys and compared them back to surveys of some decades ago and has found that a number of species are being found further north in Canada than they used to be. With the right climatic conditions, locust numbers build. When this happens, the insect senses increased competition for food supplies. Then, a tipping point is reached, and each insect quickly changes its shape, color, and behavior. Once completed, the locusts form one giant swarm and take off. The size of the swarm is big. If it contains several million individuals, then of course people will freak out. Entomologists fear that in this worst case scenario, a swarm of Central American locusts could head north in search of food and water. Let's say this locust outbreak moves up from, from Mexico into the southwestern United States. Locust swarms moving into Houston. Um, this clip, by the way, is only nine months ago. Houston moving into Phoenix and Tucson, San Diego, Los Angeles. It would be frightening, it would be incomprehensible, it would be terrifying. The sky darkens as the insect tornado. Also, one last thing, and I'll let it play out. It's nine months ago by the History Channel, His Story. One big movie strip. Though closes in on the city. If they reach big cities, they can really create a havoc. They're ubiquitous, they go everywhere, they fly, they hit you in, the, in your face, they hit you in your body. Crawling into your clothes, under your clothes, into window screens, piling up against your house. So many locusts landed on the roads, and cars then drove over the locusts and caused slick driving conditions. You might get some more traffic accidents. Propelled by winds, the locusts could cover a hundred miles a day, landing to feed, breed, and lay eggs. When the eggs hatch and locusts grow, this perfect mega swarm could have billions of wingless nymphs charging and chomping through field and farm. People in U.S., governments and cities are not equipped to deal with locusts because it's not real, it's unlikely, and they probably don't know how to deal with it. Emergency services, desperate to avert total catastrophe, may propose deploying airplanes loaded with pesticides to spray the swarms of locusts. We have all sorts of bureaucratic and, and sound environmental reasons why large-scale spraying can't simply be done on an emergency basis. It requires permissions, it requires environmental justification, it requires a great deal of documentation. We probably don't have enough aircraft available for this either in terms of dealing with this. When locusts are already airborne, then chemical pesticides will not be that effective. The other problem with chemical control is that you may not have a long-term control. You knock the populations down, but some research indicates that you may actually make it a little bit more likely you'd have an outbreak in the future. Public anxiety would grow. This familiar sense 
of fear, loss of control, panic, blame, what's causing this, who's in charge, why isn't something being done? Experts estimate that the nation's 200 million and more acres of crops could be decimated. Our supply of important crops would be basically gone in a matter of few days. Billions of dollars would be lost in agriculture alone, and thousands of ranchers and farmers could lose their livelihoods. Food shortages and famine could follow. I'm not going to try to get predictive myself, but I don't think that they're doing these um, incidents in Afghanistan and stuff just for the heck of it, right? Looks to me like it is part or pretty big part of the eugenics program that we're rolling out now, unfortunately. So, Welcome back to Fox Recaps. Today, I'm going to explain the movie Locus released in the year 2005. The movie begins in a USDA research lab in Virginia. A couple comes into the lab at night to feed the experimental swarm of Australian flag locusts. They plan to complete the task quickly and go on a date. Willie is an outsider who is horrified at the sight of the insects. He refuses to go inside the box to help feed them while his girlfriend Gina laughs at him and does it herself. The box has two glass doors, one of which requires a code to be opened. After she gets inside with a ficus tree as food, the first door is supposed to be closed so none of the insects can escape. Gina is so confident that she doesn't bother wearing protective gear before making direct contact with the insects. She soon realizes that it was a mistake when the insects start to attack and bite her. Willie runs to help her but doesn't know the code to the door. Even while being continuously attacked by hundreds of locusts, she blurts out the code, letting him in. Finally, he uses the protective coat to dust the insects away and brings her out of the box. The couple is out of breath and shaken by what they just experienced. Somewhere else in Washington, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Maddie Riordan, is with her husband, Dan. They have planned to spend the day together before Maddie leaves for a different state that evening. However, their plan is disturbed when Maddie gets a call from her assistant, Vivian. She informs her about a USDA lab that has been red flagged by the GAO. Maddie is surprised because she is uninformed of any dangerous experiments taking place in the lab. She tries to investigate using her security contacts, only to find that the information is classified. Because the matter is suspicious, she has to find out about the experiment before her flight that evening. Hence, she ditches the plans with her husband and asks her assistant to be in said lab in 15 minutes. Dan is irritated by the fact that she never has time for him. He has given up a promotion and a salary raise to be there with her. So when she has to go to work, he's even more frustrated. At the lab, Maddie meets her former professor, Dr. Peter Axelrod who is also the researcher she's supposed to investigate. Peter takes her to the lab where the experimental locusts are being kept. To show what he's created, he extracts a single locust from inside the box and squirts it with a pesticide. To Maddie's surprise, the pesticide does nothing to the insect, meaning that it's immune to it. 
Peter adds that he has created a hybrid by crossing Australian plague locusts with the desert locust. The genetically modified locusts are resistant to all known pesticides. They reproduce 10 times faster than normal locusts, and they live for several years. Maddie realizes that even if one of the insects is let out, it can reproduce at an exponential rate and destroy continents causing locust plagues. She declares the experiment is a bioweapon and assumes it is being funded by the Department of Defense. In the end, she has no way but to order the officials to destroy all the hybrid locusts. She also fires Peter from the lab for conducting unethical and dangerous experiments. Following that, scientists with protective suits and flamethrowers exterminate all the locusts. One of them secretly saves a handful of insects in a tube labeled biohazard. He has been tipped by the Department of Defense to acquire them. While changing, he accidentally drops the jar in a sink, causing several locusts to escape down the drain. Later, we see the escaped locusts flying away through a manhole. Maddie returns home several hours later to Dan waiting for her. He calmly tells her that he cannot be with her anymore because she prioritizes her work more than him. <laughs> Maddie cannot convince him otherwise with the little time she has before catching the flight to go on her next mission. Meanwhile, in Maryland, the exterminator brings the remaining insects that he had retrieved from the lab. The case is then transferred to an army truck. Suddenly, the man driving the vehicle is attacked by an unknown insect that looks like the locust that escaped earlier. The accident causes the case to drop off the vehicle and be crushed. <laughs> the insects inside it are let free into the air. One month after the incident, Maddie discovers she is pregnant and calls Dan. He receives the call, but has to end it before she can tell him the news. In the following scene, we see a couple camping by the river. They wake up to see their tent is filled with hundreds of locusts. Then, a few hours later, a swarm descends on the Napa Valley, causing farmers to run in fear. Maddie, who is on the road with her team, also sees the same swarm flying overhead. They immediately begin to track its pattern. Somewhere else, Peter is at home discussing their financial condition with his wife. Now that he's unemployed, they're worried about their daughter, Sophia. Peter accompanies Sophia to the bus stop, then makes his way to the gym. Suddenly, he hears a strange buzz getting louder by the second. He stops by a cornfield and witnesses a large swarm of locusts taking off into the sky. On getting a closer look, he is shocked to realize that they are the hybrid locusts that he created. He immediately follows Sophia's school bus. But before him, the locusts reach the bus and attack the children. Peter arrives and drags an unconscious Sophia to his car. <laughs> then, in Napa Valley, Maddie and her team reach the farm that was attacked earlier. They see that the locusts have stripped every bush and tree down to the bark. Maddie realizes the severity of the situation and alerts the Department of Agriculture of the dangers. In Washington, D.C., Dan also finds out about the locust infestation and calls Maddie to ask her about it. Since he works in the U.S. Weather Service, Maddie asks him for an update on weather patterns to predict the swarm's next movement. They guess that one of the two swarms that have been formed on each coast will be moving to Pittsburgh in a few hours. Meanwhile, somewhere in Visalia, California, a crowd has gathered for a citrus festival, unaware of the swarm of deadly insects coming their way. 
Eventually, Maddie and the team reach the Citrus Festival and start evacuating it. However, before everyone is in a safer location, the swarm attacks them. Amidst the chaos, someone accidentally drops a camera that records the event. In the following scene, the swarm reaches Pittsburgh, forming huge black clouds in the sky. Soon, the insects wreak havoc in the city, entering office buildings and houses via the air vents. At Pittsburgh International Airport, Peter meets a worker from the air traffic control and asks her not to launch planes to the northeast. However, the workers do not take him seriously. Because of their mistake, a plane runs into the swarm and crashes with an explosion. Following that, Peter goes back to the hospital with his wife and daughter. They see the news where the video captured at the Citrus Festival is being broadcasted. Just then, FBI agents arrive to arrest Peter and take him under federal custody. At the same time, Maddie meets her boss, Secretary Morales, and many other officials to discuss their next move. Dan is also in attendance because of his expertise in crops. He recommends they harvest the crops all across the country to starve the locusts and save the crops before they're destroyed. During the meeting, they find the eastern swarm of the creatures have turned carnivorous and have started to eat livestock. They register that if the locusts are starved, they might feed upon animals, and eventually, humans. After the meeting, Maddie tells Dan that she is pregnant with his child. He is ecstatic, but they do not have much time to celebrate. Meanwhile, Peter is at the FBI Bureau talking to the officials about a way to stop the locusts. He claims that there is no way to stop them without killing 50% of the American population. The scientists find an alternate way where only 10% of the population will be killed. They plan to drop an extremely toxic VX gas on the locusts to kill them. A while later, Maddie flies in to meet Peter and finds out about the FBI's plan to drop the VX nerve gas. She protests against the plan, comparing it to a nuclear bomb attack that will kill millions of people. Yet, the officials ask her to focus on the billion people who will be saved instead. General Miller wants to do a test of the gas on the swarm that is flying over Ohio. Maddie agrees to it only because she's promised that the test will be done in rural areas with almost no population. Still, she calls the national news and secretly tells them about the test run before boarding the helicopter with the rest of the group. When they are airborne, they're informed that the target swarm over Ohio has moved towards southern Indiana, which is way more populated. If they go through with the plan, they will be killing millions of people just because of the test run. Maddie protests, but General Miller replies that he never confirmed there won't be any fatalities. Desperate to do something, Maddie uses a spanner to smash the VX container. Scared that she will kill everyone on board, Miller has to reluctantly turn around before the gas is released. On landing, Maddie calls Dan and asks him to check on her grandfather, Lyle, whose farm lies right in the path of the locusts. Dan leaves for Indiana immediately, while Maddie and Peter do the same. On his way, Peter gets a call from his daughter, who has come out of the coma. With renewed motivation, they reach the farm and meet Lyle, who is gathering the cattle and moving them indoors. Maddie and Peter help him, and Dan joins them later. Not long after, the farm is attacked by the swarms. The group has to take shelter in a metal grain silo to save themselves. 
As they brainstorm ideas to keep the insects away from the harvested grains, Maddie remembers seeing a few locusts get killed in the electric fly trap outside. She gets an idea to use an old generator to send an electric current that will hopefully kill the bugs. They try using it, but find out the generator has no fuel. Peter volunteers to get the fuel from the other side of the barn, and runs outside with a sheet to protect himself. The swarm attacks him immediately, but he manages to get the generator inside. By this time, he is covered in blood, revealing that the insects have grown carnivorous. Lyle loads up the generator, and Dan attaches the cables to the metal shell of the silo. This sends a powerful current through it. The insects that are attacking the silo are killed immediately because of the electricity. Peter struggles because he has lost too much blood, and eventually dies. Following that, Dan and Maddie rush to Washington, D.C. At the Department of Homeland Security, the officials agree to Miller's plan to use the toxic VX gas on the swarms. Maddie and Dan enter the debate, and try to convince them otherwise. When they suggest using electricity, Miller does not believe it can work. The Secretary of the Department of Energy reveals that it is possible to create a massive electric current to kill the swarms, as both swarms are approaching the continental power grids. Eventually, all the officials support the plan, except Miller, who warns he will act if the plan fails. Maddie remembers that the insects are attracted to light. She calls the USWS, asking them to launch weather balloons near the power lines so the insects would be attracted. The following day, power is switched off throughout the United States. It is rerouted to the two power lines, one each in Western and Eastern America. Maddie and Dan arrive at the site and make the Air Force move the weather balloons closer to the power lines. Soon, the power grids are activated and the swarms fly into the amplified power cables. Unfortunately, the cables burst into flames, but the plan still works. The locust swarms are killed by the electricity. The officials who had been holding their breaths celebrate the success. But General Miller is warned about the consequences of wanting to kill millions of people. The scene shifts to a year later. Maddie has given birth to a child and is living a happy life with Dan. She receives an offer for a new job, but consults Dan before accepting, showing that her family is more important to her than her job. That was all from the video. I hope you liked it. I think Subscribe the, uh, for more content like this. Well, like I said, I, I think a lot of this is uh, predictive programming, right? It seems, well, now I'm not, I'm not saying that the country's going to get hit with swarms of um, locusts, but it certainly appears like they got the locusts going um, full steam ahead in Afghanistan now, don't they?
bioterror is there's always the potential for bioterror. And we have a major biodefense research and development effort that spans agencies from the NIH to do the basic research to be able to develop better vaccines, how you counter engineered microbes, how you approach drug resistance engineered microbes. The CDC has surveillance mechanisms to determine if there's new microbes or anything out there in society particularly toxic that could be used in a bioterror situation. The Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, we do all of that. Having said that, the worst bioterrorist is nature itself. Nature is very good at evolving microbes to create problems, much smarter than any terrorist. So what we've tried to do over the years is to use the expertise, the resources, to allow us to respond better to a deliberate affront or attack on us with a microbe of any type engineered or what have you, to use that knowledge to better prepare us for what we know will happen. We don't know whether we will ever have an attack on us in the United States or elsewhere using biological weapons. We absolutely know that we will have the evolution of a new disease naturally occurring that will impact society. And the reason is because history has told us that that will happen. I can't predict to you when the next one will be. Hopefully it won't be for a very, very long time, but it will happen. There's no doubt it will happen. So instead of looking at it in two separate silos of biodefense for biological threat for the deliberate and countermeasures for naturally occurring, you should essentially prove the science so that you could do both. Well, I think that, that where we are right now in science and molecular biology, and particularly molecular virology, and our ability to sequence and recombine and, and create various organisms in some respect, is that the best way to prevent a nefarious attack is to develop a culture of responsibility among scientists. You, you have to have some um, restrictions in the sense of you don't do work that could actually hurt people in the sense of if you have a laboratory accident, you have to have the right containment. Uh, once you start being too restrictive, you then impede creativity for so many of the good things that could come out of the same type of work. So if you develop a culture of responsibility, the vast, 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 vast majority of work on that area will be done for the betterment of mankind. They're always going to be the bad guys around, somewhere, someplace, you would hope that they don't have the opportunity to do something that is going to ultimately hurt mankind. When I say that, I get back to what I mentioned just a moment ago, that the chances of nature creating something really bad is much better than we mere mortal humans doing it. What do you interpret that to mean? I interpret that to mean that these scientists are kind of failures at the really technical stuff, right? But 
they're going to be able to rely on bugs. So be safe out there. Goodbye for now.